Well, welcome. Um, I'm not on. I'm not on. Okay, am I on? No? Sorry. Now I'm on. Okay, sorry about that. Well, welcome this morning to Lion and Lamb. If you're a visitor, we especially welcome you. When I went out the door this morning, um, I just looked up at the sky and the weather, and I thought, you know, the weather today is exactly what it was one year ago today. The exact same weather. And why would I know that? Why would I remember something so precisely about the weather? Well, this is all I'll say about this today, but that was the day of Robin's funeral. One year ago today. So, uh, it's been a tough 10 days or so, but I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I just needed to say that one thing, though. Well, today we're going to talk about a hard topic. And I've titled this message, When Spiritual Leaders Fall. And it's something we would rather not have to even talk about in the church. We would prefer that this was not an issue to deal with. But as you'll see, what I'm going to talk about today is not going to be just the nasty details associated with the fall of a man who surprised everyone. I'm going to talk about the relevance of what happened to him to all of us, especially those of us who have any type of leadership responsibility in the church. To set the stage to begin, I'm going to begin by reading a few related verses which I think are very relevant to what may have happened in his life. And it's at the top of your handout, but let me read these and then I'll pray. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And this serpent, Satan, disguises himself as an angel of light. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His flaming darts of evil deception and lies are never-ending, and though our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. These truths are especially true as related to people who serve the Lord in prominent or even lower-level leadership positions. So, uh, let me pray, and then we'll get into this message. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, humbly recognizing that we are all sinners, that we are all vulnerable to these attacks, and how much we need your grace to give us strength and to empower us to live faithful and holy lives. We repent of our sins against you and against others this morning here, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us through the example of fallen leaders to see where we are vulnerable, to see how we need to change. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us with these dangers and vulnerabilities and temptations that we face. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, you've already heard a little bit from the pulpit here about Ravi Zacharias. He's going to serve as the main example of what we're talking about today, and then we'll really get off of his specifics into this broader topic of dangers that we all could be facing. Uh, about six weeks ago, Mike sent out a uh, message to the body here that had two links to articles that addressed the fall of Ravi Zacharias. And uh, it, these two articles provided advice as to how we as a church should respond to this kind of thing going on. One article was by Greg Kokel, who's a Christian author and speaker and founder of Stand to Reason, which is a Christian apologetic organization. And the second was by Randy Alcorn, who's a popular author. Probably many of you have read his books. He's also the founder and director of Eternal perspective ministries, and both men did provide guidance to the church about how we should work through the shock and major disappointment we feel 
when trusted Christian leaders fall in these ways. And I will talk a little bit later towards the end this morning about some of the recommendations of these men. But in a follow-up message, which was on March 14th, Mike also mentioned Ravi Zacharias again, but this time he used his example as a prominent Christian ministry leader that brought shame to the name of Christ by professing faith and yet behaving in this immoral ways that we have now identified. Today I'm going to build upon much more what Mike said along this. The message that he initially set out said there would be teaching in the future that got a little more into the details and, and what this really should mean for us as Christians. And so today I'm really going to try to do that. Um, if you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, or you might have missed some of the uh, background that Mike gave in that first discussion, let me give a little bit more background, and some of this is shown on your handout. He was born in India in 1946, and he moved to Canada in 66, so 20 years old. And there, with his family, he lived and he attended college. In 71, he was still a pretty young man. He began his long career as an evangelist, an apologist, a speaker, an author. And then in 84, still pretty young, he founded Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. It was initially located in Toronto, Canada, and then later it moved to Atlanta, Georgia. He was the author of more than 30 best-selling books, won many Christian book awards, participated in hundreds of national and international Christian events and conferences. He became known to most of us because that you became familiar with him because he was the host of a radio program called Let My People Think. And then he died in May 2020 at the age of 74 from cancer of the spine. Now, during his time of Christian ministry, a moral behavior crept into his life. We don't know exactly when that started, but at, for sure, several years uh, towards the end of his ministry. And a major controversy, the first thing that, uh, that I was able to identify was a major controversy in 2016 related to communications that he had with a woman including sending sexually explicit images by text. He categorically denied ever doing that, and he accused the woman of extortion. His public statements, that's really the position that he took at that time. In 2017, here's a statement from him regarding some of those earliest allegations. Zacharias said, I failed to exercise wise caution and to protect myself from even the appearance of impropriety, and for that I am profoundly sorry. But he never repented of anything and never admitted guilt, at least from everything that I was able to look at. But shortly after he died, additional women came forward, accusing him of serious and ongoing sexual harassment, and it was mostly related to behaviors at a massage parlor or maybe multiple massage parlors over a five-year period. I'm not going to get into the uh, nasty or sinful details of what some of the reports say other than to say it was sexually immoral practices. Now, because of these accusations, his own international ministry decided to carry out an objective, independent investigation in October 2020. And here's part of the reported findings, a little more than what is on your handout. We have found significant credible evidence Mr. Zacharias engaged in sexual misconduct over the course of many years. Some of that misconduct is consistent with and corroborative of that which is reported in the news recently. And some of the conduct we have uncovered is even more serious. This misconduct is deeply troubling and wholly inconsistent with the man Ravi Zacharias presented both publicly and privately to so many over more than four decades of public ministry. We are heartbroken at learning this, but feel it necessary to be transparent. Now, during the last couple of weeks, his own daughter, Sarah Davis, who's also an executive within the ministry, 
has made public statements of apology and actions that are being taken, changing the name of the ministry to remove his name and, and then the removal of publications and videos that were authored by him. That is regardless of the truths or the value of those material. We could debate, and I'm not going to debate it today, the wisdom of the cancellation of something that has value like that. But it is happening, and their reasons and motives, you know, we, we don't know for certain, but we could guess why that this cancellation has taken place. But I'm not going to deviate into that discussion this morning. Now, um, this changing of the name, this removal of everything about him, I, I, I think we can understand a little bit about them wanting to move forward and forget. But my message the rest of this morning isn't really going to dwell on him, although I'll bring it back in a little bit from time to time, the story about him, because he is, this is a sad story. But it is just one example of spiritual leaders who have fallen. And I'm not going to try to list a bunch of others. I did make a list. I'm not going to list those people for you this morning. If you do some research, you would find out that there are a lot of leaders who have fallen. Now, what happens when a spiritual leader falls? When something like this happens, we have disappointment. We have feelings of betrayal. Obviously, the message of the gospel is harmed. Some Christians become disillusioned, especially those who lack maturity in the faith. Some turn away. I bet you know somebody who has been so turned off by some public, prominent Christian leader who says, I don't, I don't want anything more to do with church, at least. I'll, I'll worry about my spirituality outside of it. I don't want a part of this. There are, you see a few words up there that I've just mentioned, but hypocrite is a word that gets tossed out very quickly. And hypocrite is the reason why some people will turn away from participating in, I'll say, church activities. The unbelieving world seems to rejoice when a Christian leader falls into sin. And it seems some are happy to publicize the nasty details of these stories, especially if it is a notable Christian teacher. That word hypocrite becomes widely used not just by the unbelieving world, but by the believing world as well. And obviously, Satan is pleased, undoubtedly, that those who claim Jesus as Savior and teach and lead others in God's ways have shown themselves to be liars and deceivers, and yes, hypocrites, at least to some extent. Now, it was the sexual sins of Ravi Zacharias that have been emphasized, but that's not the end of it. When somebody falls in this manner, there's typically other sin that's associated with their life. In his case, we know for sure there was financial misuse of funds, that, um, that he used ministry funds to support his behaviors. This is especially true, this financial type sin, in those who have promoted the prosperity gospel, and it's fairly common. We have seen some examples of Christian leaders, especially in that movement, the prosperity gospel, to be found guilty of tax fraud or financial crimes, other misuse of funds that people entrusted to them. Now, we're quick to point this accusing finger at well-known Christian leaders whose sins have somehow been revealed to us. But when I first agreed with the elders to teach on this topic, I immediately thought that it would not be beneficial so much to us as a group to just dwell on all the details of what went wrong but instead to try to turn that into something that might be more edifying or beneficial to the body. 
And that's why I would say we need to think about whether the things that caused Ravi Zacharias to fall may not be at work in some of our lives, especially those who have the biggest target painted on our back because we are somehow serving the Lord in a position of leadership. And so my hope today is to talk about how this kind of story can help us and actually how God can use it for good, and, and we'll kind of wrap up there today. Now, when I'm thinking about those of us who might be most in jeopardy, who has the biggest target painted on your back, it would be a lot of these people who are falling into lesser areas of responsibility in the church. We, a lot of us, are leaders although we aren't famous leaders, we're not prominent, we are leading something. Whether it is pastors in the church or elders or deacons, those ministry heads we have. If you are a Christian school teacher or administrator or a Sunday school teacher or a worship leader, you are somebody who is representing the Lord and you have a target on your back. The very same forces that might have affected Ravi Zacharias are at work, and we are going to talk about today how to be ready and deal with that. And I'm going to give you, uh, I'm not going to throw a lot of statistics at you, but I want to throw a few about how prevalent sexual immorality is among church leaders. And in this case, I'm only going to talk about pastors. There are other surveys that are out there that just talk about how other kinds of uh, just men in general in the church are affected by some of these things. But let me share just a couple of these th things. This is not a small thing. It's, it's a big thing. So let me give a couple of these statistics. The Francis Schaeffer Institute conducted a survey about a decade ago, or perhaps a little longer, where they found 30% of pastors admitted to having sexual encounter, a sexual encounter, or more than one, with a parishioner. That's one-third. That's real action. That's not just sin of the mind. That's real encounters. That's major. According to a Barna study commissioned by Josh McDowell, 57% of pastors admitted to having a current or past struggle with pornography. What is that today? Uh, is it really more than that when 57% admit to it? And then a third thing, just last year, the Southern Baptist denomination released a report of accusations of sexual abuse or harassment against more than 380 of their leaders in 20 different states. Again, it's probably more than that if we knew the real numbers. Now, all sin is serious to God. Here I'm focusing on sexual immorality. That was the sin that was most pointed out about Ravi Zacharias. But all sin is serious to God. Although special attention does appear to be given to sins of sexual immorality in Scripture, more than some other sins. And the world, for sure, gets more, it gives more attention when the sins are sexual immorality, especially by spiritual leaders. Now, God hates all sin, though, because it harms our relationship with him. It harms our prayer life. It harms being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Sin gets in the way of serving God. It's what it comes down to. Now, I am not saying that a person needs to be without sin to serve in leadership in the church. That's unrealistic. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. That's from 1 John chapter 1. None of us would be qualified to serve as leaders if a sinless life was the standard by which we were judged. But the Bible does provide guidelines that help us discern if certain sins or a life characterized by sin should be disqualifying with respect to service in leadership. So, I'm going to come back to this issue of disqualification or qualification based upon 
revealed sin in the life of a person. Now, we can get caught up in these stories again, as I, I've already mentioned, uh, but we got to remember that all of us lack pure hearts, so we are all vulnerable to these attacks, and we're going to talk some about that. Unless we understand our struggle, and we're all probably familiar with this verse, but unless we understand our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, we will be unprepared for the battles that we will inevitably face. We will become careless, we'll neglect to guard our hearts and minds against these kind of relentless spiritual attacks and the unending call on our own, of our own weak flesh. We fail to put on, when we are neglecting, when we are careless, we will fail to put on the full armor of God and we will not be able to take up what we need to, to protect ourselves from the schemes of the devil. Now, what does Paul mean when he warns us about the devil's schemes? We know that the devil is probably so much more intelligent than us, we, we somehow forget that even. But we know the term, the devil's schemes, is something that is at work. He's very intelligent. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows how to strategically target people to do the most harm to the kingdom of God. And he is really good at blinding us to our sin. Well, what's a scheme? I looked it up just as a definition, and it has two parts. The first part can actually be positive. The first part of what a scheme is, it's an elaborate and systematic plan and strategy designed to achieve a major or overall gain. Aim, that's pretty positive. You know, that could be on positive side or negative side. But here's the second part of what a scheme is. The word implies secret, underhanded, and corrupt plans and actions. You put that together with having a goal, and that is a scheme. So the devil's aim is to use devious and corrupt methods to crush the gospel, proclaiming ministries, or at least harm their effectiveness. But thankfully, it's not entirely up to us to overcome the devil's schemes. God has promised to be our helper. Many of us are familiar with this anonymous words, these anonymous words from a religious person who observed a man being taken to the gallows to be hung. This is anonymous. We don't really know who said this. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Many of you have probably heard this. This person is saying, and it's become famous because it is so true. If, it was, if God did not show his grace towards us, we'd be capable of doing all those same horrible things that Ravi Zacharias did or others have done. But because God's grace is working in us and because he knows our weaknesses, he has really promised to help us and empower us to turn away from temptations. And, and he will provide this help through his Holy Spirit working in us. In his letter to, Paul, uh, to Titus, Paul wrote, Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then the end of chapter 4 in Hebrews, uh, the writer wrote, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Well, what is one of our times of need? is when we are faced with temptations and the flesh is weak, God will show his grace to help us through it. Now, God's constantly bestowing grace and mercy upon his children through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who's that ever-present helper that we really need. But we still have personal responsibility. We can't just say, God will 
do it for us. We have personal responsibility in this issue. While those of us who've trusted in Jesus as Savior may no longer be slaves to sin, we still have to deal with our old nature, our old selves. And both Jesus and Paul talked about this. I've already said it, but Jesus said, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Paul very clearly affirmed this in Romans chapter 7, that this condition will remain even after we are saved, that we will have to deal with that old self that hangs on. Right after he taught about how sanctification is at work in the lives of believers to bring about practical holy living, that's Romans chapter 6, he goes on in chapter 7 to say this, For I have desired to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. To further this thinking, in Galatians chapter 5, this thinking about personal responsibility that even believers have, Paul wrote this. He said that God's children have to make daily choices as to whether we will walk according to the flesh, the old sinful nature, or according to the spirit. This choice that he describes as to whether we walk with the spirit or the flesh is for Christians who have the Spirit and have the capability of walking according to the Spirit. And how do we know he's speaking to Christians in Galatians 5? Here's what he says. He says, Brothers and sisters, you were called to be free in Christ, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. He goes on to say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. This is a message for believers. We all have that flesh still calling. Ravi Zacharias had that flesh calling. Believers are vulnerable, and Paul knew it from personal experience, that the flesh can at times win a battle. And those battles go on in this ceaseless tug of war. We have a clear example in the Bible. When the flesh won, and we know it was a spiritual battle. And who was it? It was Peter. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And Jesus allowed this to happen to Peter. And Peter lost that one battle at least where he denied Jesus during those hours before his crucifixion. But Jesus also prayed that Peter would be, he would repent and be restored and ultimately serve in powerful ways. But despite the warning that Jesus gave him, he still lost to the flesh, the battle to the flesh. Now in this example that we have of Peter, we do see restoration to service. And I, I'm going to talk more about restoration in just a minute. And this possible uh, idea of restoration is one that is argued, very much argued, by good Bible teachers about whether restoration is possible and appropriate. Now, the question of revel, uh, restoration to service is irrelevant to Ravi Zacharias because the truth was not revealed until after his death. But it is important for us because it may come up someday in, in some situation that we are involved with. Now, there's good agreement that a person can be restored to fellowship, but there is not good agreement as to whether a person can be restored to leadership after falling. I want to give you two sides of that from two teachers whom most of us respect. I have, some, I have a quote from John MacArthur who is in opposition to restoration and a quote from uh, John Piper who is ultimately saying, yes, it can happen. So let me, let me read these two differences of opinion from these two men. Here's John MacArthur who's got the strong opposition view. He wrote this a few years back, but he has been interviewed on the Ravi Zacharias 
story just last month, and I watched the video yesterday because I just found it yesterday. Um, he has strong opinions that continue along these lines. But let me read this. Some have claimed that a leader's failure makes him more effective in shepherding fallen people. That is ludicrous. Should we drag the bottom of sin's cesspool for the most heinous sinners to lead the church? Are they better able to understand the sinner? Certainly not. Our pattern for ministry is the sinless son of God. The church is to be like him, and her leaders are to be models of Christ-likeness. We must recognize that leadership in the church cannot be regarded lightly. The foremost requirement of a church leader is that he be above reproach. It is not an act of love to return a disqualified man to public ministry. It is an act of disobedience. That's a strong statement. Now, John Piper's different view um, is because he is allowing the concept of God's grace to influence his opinion. Okay, so, and he also gave some examples of people that he thought either were doing very bad things prior to serving God or being restored. He used the example of Peter, and whether that's truly being restored, Peter had at least a degree of leadership responsibility before he fell, and so he was restored. But he mentioned other people who were uh, really serious sinners before being used by God, like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians, John Newton, who was a slave trader before becoming one of the most famous hymn writers that are out there. So, and he wrote Amazing Grace. Piper wrote the following as an alternative view to the MacArthur view. Is it possible to restore a pastor who sins sexually, but who is repentant? Or is such a pastor disqualified because he no longer meets the qualification of being above reproach? I'm afraid if I answer this the way that I should, it will give license to restore pastors too quickly. But since I should, I will. Ultimately, I think the answer is yes. A pastor who has sinned sexually can be a pastor again. And I say that just because the grace of say that just because of the grace of God and the fact that above reproach can be restored. So you see, we have two good teachers, two different views on this. But scripture does provide us with very clear qualifications for elders, deacons, and pastors. And we find that, and I'm not going to go over all that today, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, and Titus 1, we find those qualifications for these obvious church leaders. Now, ongoing or recent failure in any of these requirements should disqualify a person from being selected to serve in one of these roles, or it would probably justify their removal from serving in one of these roles. And it does make sense to apply some of those qualifications to other areas of ministry leadership. You wouldn't apply them as rigidly as you would for elders and deacons, but they should be things we would look at as being relevant to choosing people in these other roles of leadership. So, um, there's one point I want to mention, though, about some of these other qualifications. We have a tendency to elevate certain sins as the most important sin that there is. And this one disqualifies you. But a lot of these other sins, uh, you know... They're sins, yeah, but they are not disqualifying. We have a tendency to do that. Sexual sin is way up there. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other sins, too, when we look at that list of qualifications. But we don't seem to take nearly as seriously some other things, and maybe we shouldn't. This is something we could talk about. But things like this are on that list. The person who serves as an elder or a deacon should be also show good financial responsibility. They should manage their family and their own household well. They should show hospitality and self-control. You know, there's a lot of things on that list. All of them should come into play when we consider appointing someone to leadership or removing them from leadership. But as a culture, we have a tendency to elevate certain ones right to the top and, and in a way, overlook some of them a little bit. 
Now, if we are going to go with the Piper idea and say restoration is possible for someone who has fallen in one of these ways, whether it's sexual immorality or some other sin, many questions have to come into play about how that restoration process should take place and under whose oversight and how much time should take place. What should be the evidence? The person cannot say, I'm ready to be restored. It cannot be their own opinion. Yes, I did this. I repent. I'm ready. There has to be much more to the restoration process than a person's own opinion that they're ready. And it would be a really complex process, especially if they were being restored to leadership in their same church. But again, when Piper says, can a pastor who has fallen be a pastor again, maybe the answer is yes, but can they do it in the same church that they were in before? That adds all kinds of new complications to the question. But maybe they, under certain kinds of oversight, could truly be repentant, and God could receive great glory as a result of a person repenting from what they did and serving in a place where they could fit in in the future. We know that when a person, kind of unlike what MacArthur said, comes out of a life of great sin, and everybody is confident of that, God gets the glory. And that is something that is an important aspect of this. Now, I'm going to leave this idea of restoration by saying, I generally side with Piper, but with great trepidation, because it is so difficult a question. But is anything impossible for God? It's not. God can use a person who has fallen greatly, but the way he uses them may not be the way we, in our wisdom, would think that person could be reused or restored for use in his kingdom. God's will to take a person who has fallen and allow them to continue to serve in the future is something that I think, I personally at least think, the door needs to remain open because who are we to put handcuffs on God when it comes to such a thing? So what we've discussed so far, it's clear that Ravi Zacharias found himself in a spiritual battle of his heart and mind, and he lost the battle. What was it that caused a man like him, a man of God, a man who knew God's word probably better than any of us, to fail to recognize the enemy's attack and to fall into this kind of ongoing sinful lifestyle? And could those same forces be similarly at work in our lives, maybe not so seriously, but at work? What, what is it? that could cause a man like that to go down that pathway. Well, I want to start with this idea of pride. Because, and I'm going to spend more time on pride than any other reason for, for what could have happened in his life. With success comes pride. And you have to be so aware of what could follow. Especially if you're a nationally prominent radio teacher, pride is so likely to be an ongoing battle. Even for pride is also something that could easily come up if you're appointed to a much lower level of leadership in the church. If you're appointed to an elder, or now I'm a worship leader, or now I'm this or that, pride starts creeping into the picture. British theologian John Stott said, pride is the essence of all sin. And C.S. Lewis said, pride is the great sin that leads to all other sins. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then quoting from Proverbs, James says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble or grace to the humble. God's grace, which helps us to say no to temptations and sins, always there for us, that grace. But a proud heart 
can get in the way of that blessing. And because pride always causes harm, God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 6 lists six things that God hates. One of them says haughty eyes. And what does that mean? It means eyes that are blatantly and disdainfully proud. Pride gives birth to other sins of the flesh. Pride blinds us to our own sin and the harm that comes when we choose to walk according to the flesh instead of the spirit. When we're proud, we see ourselves as strong in the flesh, the opposite of what we should be seeing ourselves as. Where Jesus says, remember, you're weak in the flesh. And yet pride makes us think we're strong in the flesh. And this is especially dangerous for successful people. What, what happens to successful people? They got people all around them giving them unending praise. They start thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. They stop keeping watch over themselves. Careless behaviors put people on dangerous paths. A prideful person feels capable of indulging just a little in some sinful practice because they're strong enough to keep it under control or within limits. Pride has so many ways that it causes us to sin in much greater ways than the pride. I mean, pride is the sin. I agree with C.S. Lewis and John Stott. So many other sins come from our pride. A prideful person has no need to think as Job, or thinks they have no need to think as Job did when he said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. The prideful person thinks they've got enough self-control to look at that woman and maybe not do anything, at least at first. A little more about pride. A proud person has an inward selfish focus, which is the opposite of what Jesus commanded when he said to deny ourselves daily, or Paul's teachings to consider others more important than ourselves. Pride looks inward. God and Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching and the Bible totally tells us to not look inward but to look outward at the needs of others. Pride causes us to take our eyes off Jesus and to not draw near to God but instead draw closer to those things that are satisfying the, the desires of the flesh. And prideful people, rather than think about those things, that we're called to think about that are eternal and true and noble and pure and right, and there's even more on that list. That's what we're supposed to think about. The proud person thinks about the things that can provide fleeting temporary pleasures. I want to repeat, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride was the sin that led to Satan's fall, and it's probably the primary weapon in his arsenal that he uses. Because once we start with pride, other things follow. Now there's one other aspect that I want to talk about that I think may have related to Ravi Zacharias, but I'm not sure. But it sure can relate to a lot of us who are in leadership positions, especially those of us who are real busy people. Accountability. That is, brothers or sisters in the faith who are willing to ask us the tough questions willing to make comments to us regarding behaviors that they may be observing, accountability. The higher one rises in Christian leadership, the less likely that they're going to have true accountability partners. Why is that? Some of it is their internal reasons. Some of it is external upon, brought upon them. Let me give a, a little bit of... Uh, examples of this. A person in leadership, whether it's these prominent national type leaders or busy pastors, especially some, um, some people in the church, our church included, a lot of the leaders have full-time jobs, they're busy. The rest of you look at them, you think they got their act together. They think Maybe, if pride is in the picture, that they've got their act together. 
People in high leadership positions often do not have accountability partners. People who are willing to confront them when they need to. Either somebody's fearful of confronting them or they think, this person doesn't need me to say anything, they're smart enough. But accountability is lacking in people who are in these higher level positions. And busyness really comes into play a lot. Um, does accountability suffer first when a person is too busy? Does the person then not end up with anyone around them or, or doesn't even begin to seek input from somebody because they're too busy? Do other people look at them and say, like I've already said, they've got their act together, they should be helping me rather than me providing any input to them. So accountability is really big. Now, I want to use an example, um, an Old Testament example of a person who fell into a life of serious sin. And I'm sure you all know this story, and it's David, King David. He started sinning really bad with Bathsheba, sexual sin, then he was lying, then he had Uriah murdered. You know, a life of spiraling down that slippery slope of sin. And I'm, I'm using this example in terms of accountability. Now, David's the king. What could he do to a person who offended him? He could have his head chopped off, or he could have him put to death in some way, and people might have been a little fearful of saying anything to him. Uh, using that as an example, some people could be fearful of going to one of the spiritual leaders in their own church and, and saying something, not because we're going to chop your head off, but you just don't want the, the, uh, the implications of, of doing that. You, you see downside to going to that person with pointing something out. So what happened with David's situation? Would we call Nathan the prophet an accountability partner to him? Well, he went to David and he was willing to confront him with his sin. And you see how another person was used by God to turn a person off of that path of sin that he was on. It worked with David. And what did David write in a couple of his Psalms? Just a couple verses here. And this is from Psalm 139 and 51. And David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Create in me a pure heart, O God. David needed somebody to come to him and point out that he was on a really bad path of sin. So, I'm only really pointing to two things here as being major, although pride leads to so much more. But pride and accountability, obviously, at play, which can get in the way of a person seeing that they are on a path that is very sinful. Now, I want to wrap up this message in, in two quick ways. Greg, I want to give a couple points that Greg Kokel made in his article that we had sent out because they're important points, and I think they should be mentioned. And this is regarding our response to the failure of leaders in the church. Here's a couple of the things he said. Steer clear of the sordid details of someone's sin unless you have a genuine, genuine need to know. Most of us don't. It won't help you, and it won't help them. Do not be surprised by such sinful behavior. We're all capable of the same. No one's sin invalidates truth that they may have taught in the past. Do not allow failure of the few to cause suspicion of the many. And I'm going to add one to that list. Forgive in your heart what the person has done. Forgiveness doesn't mean a failure to carry out justice. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences to the action. But it means that we in our hearts have forgiven. And that is much easier to do if we keep reminding ourselves that we've been forgiven so much. Now, um, I want to end, and I didn't put that slide up. That, was, that goes with David's uh, psalms. But what I want to 
really end with is this, that God can bring good out of evil. This is obviously a sad and evil story of what Ravi Zacharias did. But what good can come from this? The story does definitely show us that we too may be vulnerable to the same kind of weaknesses and temptations and failings that he did. And it may open our eyes to what is going on in our lives. It may show us that we're on a slippery slope. Maybe we're just starting on that slippery slope and it may open our eyes to that. It has the potential to save marriages because people realize where they seem to be heading or it can stop a local pastor who's doing things that could harm his ministry or his family or his small body of believers. And maybe God will use this to awaken some of the lowest leaders among us who are practicing certain careless habits in their lives that impact their ability to serve the Lord in the place where God has put them. And here's one. It may actually have value to young men who have the potential to serve and become church leaders somewhere in the future because this story will influence them to get off of the path that will disqualify them from future service. There's more that could be said, but God can use these stories to make a difference in people who he wants to continue serving him or to serve him in the future. I want to end with uh, a key, the key verse, didn't talk about it, it's at the top of your handout. It says on Psalm 118.8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And much could be said about the blessings that come to those who trust in the Lord, who've entered into that rest that Jesus offers. And we could compare that to the disappointment and curses and betrayal that come to, to those of us who place too much trust in men. All I will say on this is God is good, God is faithful in all things, he'll never let us down, and men will. If we put our trust in men, we should expect disappointment. If we put our trust in God, we will never be disappointed. So let's close by standing and reading together these passages that you're going to see on the screen that... Um, these are passages that encourage us to draw near to the Lord, who's always faithful and trustworthy. And they encourage us to stand firm and resist the temptations that will surely come our way. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Amen.